Uh, good morning again, y'all. Um, it's just good to be with you. Welcome here. If you got a Bible to do, you can turn to John chapter 17. John's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, it is probably uh, 75, 80 percent away from the Bible. John chapter 17 is uh, at the end of Jesus' life. He's getting ready to be arrested in, in John chapter 18. Um, he's getting ready to go and be arrested and tried and executed. And so this is uh, kind of his last great prayer recorded for us by one of his best friends, a man named John. I'm going to read you a couple sections of it, and we're going to talk today about the question, can I know God personally? Can I know God personally? So in John chapter 17, I'll start at the first verse. After this, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought the glory on earth by finishing your work and gave you to and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and I have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from me. For I gave them the word you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. For they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And the glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None have been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, they can protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too might be truly sanctified. Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I am them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to the good news. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those who have given me to be with me where I am. To see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, 
in verse 11, he'll say, Holy Father. And then later in verse 25, he'll say, Righteous Father. But over and over again, he talks to the divine as Father. You see, Jesus built his life on the relational intimacy of God. He didn't talk to God as if God were far away or busy. He talked to God as if God were actually listening. And when Jesus stopped and opened his mouth, the divine stopped and started listening. The psalmist, uh, King David, uh, whom Jesus I would have read and knew and knows, he said it this way, I, because God bends down to listen, I would pray all the days of my life. You see, Jesus talked as if his dad stopped spinning the stars in the heavens and stopped, um, put down his creator's camera in order to listen to his son anytime his son wanted to talk. And so Jesus talked all the time. Sometimes he talked by himself. We're told that every morning Jesus would get up early and go and spend time with his father in secret. We're also told uh, that Jesus would pray in front of his disciples, that he would pray uh, in front of public people, that he would pray around, that he would pray over meals, that he would give thanks, that it was uh, spontaneous and, gra and grateful. And we see uh, that Jesus doesn't just interact with God as Luke Skywalker interacts with the Force, but he interacts with God as Father. He enters in this familial relationship language. You see, the language of Father and Son is inherently relational. It doesn't make sense to call God Father unless God, unless God is in a relationship, in a, in a Son relationship. To have a relationship, um, we see that Jesus makes this time and then goes uh, through it. Uh, we see uh, that Jesus uh, spent time uh, with his uh, father uh, habitually in private. We see that he also did it regularly by going to the temple and the synagogues. And he wasn't just going through the motions. We remember that Jesus loved to call the temple uh, my father's house. There's this great story in the Bible that's perfect for Mother's Day. At one time, Jesus' mom, great lady, God bless her soul, uh, lost Jesus. For three days, lost Jesus. And what's eight? She lost him. My mom, I don't know, if you had for three days, you do not Right. Nah, just with that. And they find him, and they, he's in the temple, and they're like, Jesus, where have you been? Don't you know I had to be in my father's house? It reminds me of a dude I went to college with. He named his bed Prayer. Like, the name of the bed was Prayer. That way, when his roommate wanted him to do something, something like that, he said, I'm going to go to my room and spend some time in prayer. So that no one would interrupt him, but nobody wanted to interrupt his nobody would interrupt him because they thought he was praying. But he wasn't praying, he was in prayer, in his bed, taking a nap. Jesus often uh, thinks us that, and that leads us to our next point, uh, which is uh, that Jesus prays like prayer changes things. Like God is not a spectator in the world, like God is an active participant in things going on in the world. Jesus prayed that the Almighty could and would bring his weight to bear on the courses of history. Jesus had those set times to pray. He also just prayed where he was. He didn't wait until he went to the temple to pray. He didn't wait until church services to pray. He prayed on mountains and in fields and in boats and at the dinner table. Can you tell why I like this guy so much? He talked to God alone and with other people around him. He talked to God like real, like the real workings and feelings and dreams and fears of his heart mattered to the eternal. The, the one who, who made everything, the one who has existed from all time to all time, cared about uh, how he felt and what was going on. When he felt sorrow, he prayed about it. When he felt joy, he prayed about it. When he was in need, he prayed. He told his father when his heart hurt and when it overflowed with joy. 
Jesus lived like life was a great adventure uh, in participation with the Father to seek and to save the lost. He lived like everything he had uh, was from God and for God and, and to help and to, to participate in God's mission to the world. You saw that over and over again. He says that everything I have excuse me, is yours and everything you have is mine. He says that in verse 9. He says, everything you've asked me to do, I've done. And it's been, uh, he lives like life is an adventure. And he can trust God because he and God are working together. He saw God as Father everywhere. He'd look out in a field of, uh, of crops, a field of wheat, and he'd say, man, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who went out to sow some wheat. And then he would look out and he'd see a flock of sparrows flying and he'd say, see those sparrows up there? Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet God knows when even one of those sparrows gets shot. Why are you worried? You're worth more than many, many sparrows. You look at uh, you look at a huge net full of fish and you say, you know what? God wants to use you to fish for people. Everywhere he looked reminded him of their friendship and their intimacy. And John 17 gives us that glimpse into that relationship. We see uh, that Jesus, uh, this relationship gives Jesus incredible uh, strength and joy and balance. And there's a point in John in chapter 6 where Jesus uh, feeds uh, 5,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish. And it says that they wanted to make him king. And Jesus said no. Jesus could reject the crowds. He could reject all the demands of people around him. He did not have to please other people. He wanted to have the people of God. And so he lived without the concern or the anxiety over, over what other people were thinking about his teaching. Because he rejected them making him king, many of them turned away from him. And he turned to his disciples and said, God, what do you do? And they said, where else are you going to go? Only you have the word of Jesus has this balance. No matter how the crowds sway, fickle or not, Jesus has this, this reservoir of joy and certainty about his identity and who he is. And therefore, he has incredible joy. He overflows in, in feasts and in, in, in celebration. Evidently, Jesus was so much fun to be around as that the religious people called him a drunkard and a partier. And, 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 and yet people flocked to him, came to him and Rose. This kind of spiritual life was so compelling that his disciples are like, they've never seen anything like it. The boys who are falling around in the woods don't know what it is, and so they asked him. They've never seen anybody talk to God like a friend. Anybody who lives like life with God is an adventure instead of a straitjacket. They were blown away by it. And so one day they asked him, can you teach us to pray? Can you teach us to relate to God the way you relate to God? Can you teach us how it is to be in intimate communion with God? I don't know about you, uh, but when I look at Jesus' life, it doesn't sound a lot like my own. And so, I can sit here and finish it and say, go home, pray more, try better, do better, love God harder, strive harder. But that wouldn't help you or me any. But as you see, I'm... That is what is considered in the old, the old covenant, which was this action of, of doing these things and enforcing and trying to, to convince myself to love God and to trust God. And Jesus said, basically, the reason you don't pray, the reason you don't have a personal relationship with God is because you conceive of God in terrible ways. You believe lies about Him. 
He's thinking in his head. He's got to be thinking about Jeremiah's great prophecies. Uh, Jeremiah used to say things like this. He used to say, <coughs> he used to say, my people are fools. They don't know me. They're senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in the evil. They don't know how to do Because they don't know me, they don't know how to do any good. Jesus summarizes that at the end of uh, John chapter 17 and verse 25. He says, righteous father, the world does not know you. The world does not know you. You see, the great problem with the world is not the, the conservatives or the liberals. It's not the, the terrorists or the teachers. It's that people don't know God, that we have spiritual amnesia, that we have lost our way, that we have become utterly and helplessly lost. And so we believe all kinds of myths and lies about God's heart and God's nature. And when Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them to relate to God as he related to God, to pray to God as he prayed to God, he told them these incredible stories. In Luke chapter uh, 11, I'm going to show you two of these teachings from Luke, and we'll finish in John. But in Luke uh, chapter 11, they say, teach us to pray. And Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer, and he says, you can call God Father just like I call God Father. And you can come before him, and you can worship him, worship him and then you can ask him for and then he tells the story in Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 5. He says, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of your friendship, Yet, because of your shameless audacity, he will surely give and give you as much as you need. It took me a long time to understand this. I'm going to read a few more verses and then I'll explain what I just want to Verse 9 says, So I say, when you ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Verse 11 says, Which of you fathers? If your son asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It took me a long time to understand what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is diagnosing the pictures we have of God in our head, at least the working, functional pictures we have of God. When we pray, he's saying, you got friends, and if you go to that friend in the middle of the night, and you interrupt them, they're going to be angry with you, and they're not going to want to give anything to you. But then eventually they're going to get up against you, just because you're bold, and you're banging on the door, and they want you to go away. Stop thinking of God like that friend. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you think in your head, you don't pray because you're afraid you're interrupting God. You're afraid that God's somewhere sleeping or busy or doing something, and you're going to interrupt them, and God will eventually begrudgingly give to you. He's saying, God is better than that. God will lavishly pour out on you. Ask, stop, knock, seek, find. God is here. God is not a friend who is begrudgingly giving to you. God is the God of, of excessive generosity, the God who answers prayer, the God who bends down to listen, the God who is near, who is as close as the breath in our lungs and the skin on our body. Stop thinking of God as a friend who will not get out of bed to give you bread to help you feed someone else. And then he goes on and he says, if you fathers know how to give your children good gifts, how much more does the Father in heaven know how to give his children good gifts, give them the Holy Spirit? He says, you think of God, even when you hear the language of Father, 
think of God and you imagine a father who's not even as good as you. But if you could compare the best earthly dad you've ever seen, if you took the greatest dad that ever lived and compared him with God the Father, you know what Jesus calls that dad? Esau. You gotta love Jesus with bluntness. He says, if you, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more does your father in heaven? He's saying, the Father is here to give you incredible gifts, and He wants to pour them out on you. He's, he's here, and He loves you more than you could ever imagine. God is not a begrudging friend. God is not a, an absentee Father. He is the God of compassion and mercy. And then finally, Jesus goes, and He tells another story in Luke chapter 18. It says in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, it says, Jesus told His disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear the God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so she will eventually, so she won't eventually come back and attack. And the Lord said, Listen to what the judge says. And will my God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out and they are not? But keep putting them off. I tell you, so he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, the Son of Man comes when he finds faith on earth. In this last picture, he said, You tend to approach God like a bad judge who's going to ignore you and tell you, beg and plead and beg and plead. But God is not a bad judge. God is generous and merciful. And the Son of Man comes and reveals us to you. Stop praying and relating to God as if he was a bad dad or a bad friend or a, an untrustworthy judge. God is none of those things. God is the inverse of all of those things. God is the, the true judge who ministers of justice with mercy. God is the true Father who is tender and compassionate and bends down. God is the, the true friend who lays down his life for his friends. And that should sound pretty familiar because Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but I have called you friends. Jesus comes and he lays down his life for his friends. In Jesus, we see the heart of God. We see the, the true nature of God because Jesus has come not just to tell us that knowledge of God is possible, and here's how you can obtain it. Jesus comes to give it to us. That's what he said in John chapter 17. He said, I have come to give eternal life to those you have given me. And this is eternal life, that you know the only true God. Later he will say that the world doesn't know you. I know you, and they know you to the same. And I have made you known, and will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and I am them. Jesus has come to make God knowable to you. Can you know God personally? Yes. How? Because of Jesus and his cross. You see, sin stood in the way. Sin blocked our vision and deafened our ears. Sin estranged our heart and warped our view of God into these awful, uh, heretical, blasphemous things. And though many of us would never say that we picture God as a begrudging friend or as a bad parent or as an untrustworthy judge, functionally, we live as though that were the case. And Jesus says, I've come to reveal the absolute heart of God, the God who chases down and rescues and ransoms and redeems. We see in the cross that Jesus bears the weight of our sin and he gives us personal knowledge of God, which is what Jeremiah prophesied 
We read in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, down to 34, that there is a day coming, says the Lord, when they will not say to one another, Know the Lord, where neighbors won't have to teach neighbors, but everyone will know the Lord, from the youngest to the oldest, from the least to the great. Everyone will know the Lord. And how will they know the Lord? The last verse tells us, God will forgive their wickedness, and He will remember their sins no more, and He will make a covenant with a new covenant. That language of new covenant also reminds you of something which is good last year. The last night that Jesus replied to sat down with the disciples and took bread and broke it and took a cup and said, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, which is still in my blood, which I pour out for you for the forgiveness of sins. You can know God. You can know God intimately and relationally. It works. As he said, like a relationship. In Jeremiah, he said it works like a husband-wife relationship. In Jesus, he says it works like a father-son relationship. There's a relationship. Now let me ask you, are you pursuing God the way you pursue another person or the way you prepare for a manifest? Are you trying to memorize more information about God? Are you trying to go through the motions so that the teacher in the sky does not give you demerits or does not give you a C? Or are you trying to chase him down as hard as you worked to get a date when you were a junior in high school? I can remember high school. It wasn't that long ago for me, a lot shorter than some of you all. Uh, but when I was in high school, I was a pretty good student. And I worked really hard, and I studied plenty. But you know what I did every single night without regard to I fought over the telephone with my sister, who's the same age as I am, to see who could call our room first. We didn't have the same one, obviously. But we did have one telephone. And you guys remember these painful days before cell phones and the landlines and that line, you know, we had a 12 foot cable, you could reach all the way to the kitchen table and sit down so you can never stand more. But we'd sit there and we'd fight over it. Because we realized at that point that you could learn mathematics by studying, but you could not learn another person without communication and time and shared experience. And friends, there are literally millions of people in this world, and there are millions of people in the American South who are Christian by culture and by activity, but who don't know the Lord Jesus any more than they know Elvis Presley. They know stuff about them, but they don't know him. They know facts and figures. They know how to say the right prayers. They know the Apostles' Creed, but they don't know the Lord or follow the Lord that the Apostles follow. Maybe you grew up Catholic or Baptist or Baptocostal or Presbyterian, and, and, and you just go through the motions. And these people tend to approach Jesus as a checklist. They tend to leave duty, guilt-driven faith. If I'm not there, then so-and-so will call. If I'm not there, then God will be angry. I go to church because I'm supposed to. I go to this church because it's where my family's always going to church. And mom and daddy in the graveyard watching to see if I show up on Sunday morning. So how can you tell? How can you tell if you love Jesus or if you are just going through the motions? If you know God or if you just know about God? Let me just point this out. Is church about a checklist? Is church about a checklist? Are you here because you enjoy God? Do you want to know more about the one that you love? 
Are you pursuing Jesus the way you pursue someone uh, that you are uh, fascinated by, that you're intrigued by, that you're wooed by, that you're in love with, that you're infatuated with? Are you doing it because you're afraid that if you don't do it, so-and-so will call or God will be mad? Often, if you are doing this out of religious obligation and not out of relational intimacy, then you will look for minimal participation standards. You will see, how little can I do? What's the, what's the bare minimum I can get by with and still call myself a Christian? You will start to look for how far can I go into sin without disqualifying myself from the love of God? You will start to ask the question that every middle schooler ever asked when you were having the version of these conversations. How far is too far? And you will do it with drinking or materialism or how big can my house be or how whatever it is for you. If you don't know Jesus relationally, you can talk about what God did in the Bible, but you cannot talk about what God is doing in your life. And because you don't actually know Jesus, and you have yet, not yet welcomed and received and experienced His love for you, you will not be able to admit past failures. You will not be able to talk about that time you got bloody drunk in college, but when you tend to medicate the emotional pain in your life by buying something new. You'll never be able to talk about that time where your pride got so big you could not see yourself. Where everyone around you was a fool and a barbarian. And God had to humble you. If you don't know Jesus, you will practice unforgiveness and resentment because you will not have a real awareness of how much God has forgiven you. It will always be just theoretical knowledge in your brain, not hard knowledge that drives itself into compassion. Your family will think you are Your children will know that your faith is a sham. When you read the Bible, it's for information, not transformation. And then finally, you focus on all about heaven. But what do I need to do to get into heaven, not about Jesus Christ? I think the American South, as much as any place in the world, has fallen prey to cultural Christianity, which is not the gospel, it's just moralism. What do I need to do to get into heaven? Because Jesus told you what eternal life is. Eternal life is that you know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ in you that's what eternal life is. And when you know God, then the love God has for God the Father has for God the Son will be in you. Jesus will be in you. You will be filled with gratitude even in the hardest circumstances. You'll be able to point out that God has made provision for John. You will have joy. Which honestly, after walking through some of the most difficult things in my life, I don't, I know for a fact, doesn't mean we have Doesn't mean we have But it does mean that when life gets really brutal, you'll be with Jesus, you'll look up and say, Father, Father, I'm just glad I got someone to talk to, somebody to yell at. You have hope. You will talk to God. Your relationship with God will will not be something that you check off in the morning or in the evening, but something that punctuates your day. As we think about this worship service and plan it as a worship committee and those things, one of the things we constantly look at is 
Thank you for this one. 